Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of True Crime on Easy Street. My name is Kelly Turner, and I'm not a doctor. My name is Scott Wright. I am a mediocre journalist who did not talk over the intro today. You did not. Yay I'm me. So proud of One you. in a row. Yay you, Scott. I'm Katie Givens. I'm not a lawyer. <laughs> and uh, it is September. And, and it's still summertime. Let's clear that up. It's still summer. But it is heck. Fall, fall is We discussed quickly. this last week. We did. But fall is quickly approaching. <sighs> I see where you're going. And coming October the 1st, uh-huh. which is also the first Saturday of October, is the fall festival here in our area. and In Center, Alabama. In Center, Alabama. And your favorite podcast is going to have a booth. 99% Invisible? <laughs> no. Oh, you mean true, this podcast. Yes, True Crime on Easy Street. We are going to have a booth there. So come see us. Mm-hmm. We'll be there from 7 a.m. To 1 p.m. That's Ish. early, Scott. That's, Are you going to get up that early? I, don't, I may just not go to sleep on Friday. <laughs> just Sounds stay like up. <laughs> Sounds like you'll have a very interesting conversation I'm, with Scott. They will keep by. me uh, activate or uh, keep me uh, occupied at Easy Street on Friday night if I choose to do that. Yeah, Shane awesome. and Randy play that Friday night. Before. Bingo. So we'll just we'll just keep the party going on into the next day and then watch some college football after that. I'm and excited now. Yeah, fun times. But let me tell you a little bit about our booth. Uh, when you drop by, we are going to be selling some chances to win a pair of Beats headphones. Mm-hmm. They're the Beats that go in the ears. They're the um they're they're kind of comparable to Apple AirPods. Okay, so the small so ones. The small ones. The wireless that mm-hmm. you can connect to wireless, your wireless small beats device we have we will have chances for that you pay one dollar and you get your name in the jar to be drawn to get a chance if you pay three dollars mm-hmm. your name goes in five times what i know ups your chances and if you pay five dollars ten times in the jar that sounds crazy who now, came up with that I'll, ten minutes ago some idiot okay <laughs> so this is but there's a bonus if you stand there with us while talking with us and you go to Apple Podcasts and you give us a five-star rating and you comment so we know who you are. And, and we'll then show it to you've us. you've done it. Yep. Gotcha. Whatever you put in the jar, we will double it. So, like, if you gave us a dollar, your name will go in there twice if you do that on Apple iTunes as well. If you gave $3, instead of it being five times, it'll be ten times. I see what you're doing. You see what I'm doing? I'm here? terrible at math, but I'm starting to get the hang of this. Okay, and then if you get gave us five dollars and your name went in ten times, but you also went to Apple iTunes or whatever it is. What is it? Apple Podcast? Yeah. You have to talk to Katie about yeah. that. Whatever. Don't look at me. Text up. Give us give us five stars and comment. Your name will go in twenty Time. And that is what about a one hundred and fifty dollar value that we're giving away. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah they 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 are worth one hundred and fifty dollars when they are on sale. So bring your ass, true crime fans. We're going to give right. you something to listen to our podcast on. That's right. You can li- you can use those to listen to us every week, or whatever whatever you want to do. And I, I think we talked about this. Maybe we didn't. What we should do? We shouldn't announce the winner that day at Fall Festival on Main Street in Center, Alabama. We should wait and do it on a future, ep- like the next episode. Yeah, we will of True Crime on Easy Street. Mm-hmm. Then we could announce it. Another incentive to listen to the show. Absolutely, you can hear your name, and we will collect a little bit of basic information from you. Not so that we can stalk you or anything. No, we're just not so, into that. Just so we can let you know that you are the winner. So good luck, everybody, and we will see you on October first. At our table at the fall festival, we will also have some T-shirts on sale mm-hmm. at a discounted price of ten dollars. Ten dollar T-shirt. Where else do you come get? on? Where and else? it's a pretty good looking T-shirt. I love that T-shirt. It says "Team of Experts" on the back, and exactly. we all know that that's us. And we yeah. have a limited quantity, so you better get there early. You better get there early, yeah. buy those chances, and get that T-shirt and sport that merch around. Please, you you could win some beats. And we're going to be wearing three of those T-shirts, but if yes. you want the one that we have bad enough, we will take it off and give it to you. We will plan accordingly for that. If you don't know Scott, he loves a shirt swap. I hey. love a shirt swap. We'll tell that story later. We'll that's get Shane a, on to tell that story. That's a story for another day, but at one point in time, <laughs> Scott swapped T-shirts with some random guy in a bathroom. Yeah, at a, at a casino in Tunica, Mississippi. Yep, that's I, a story. I came for, home with an Ole Miss T-shirt. All right, that's a story for another day. But this yeah. week... We are going to continue learning about 
Sherry Fay, our Mm-mm. victim from last week. So I'm yep. going to turn it over to Scott. Tell us what happened. Here goes nothing. So when we ended last week's episode, Dawn Smith was on the phone with a mysterious caller that she had come to be familiar with this person's voice. Mm-hmm. And there were several things that we did last week that, that Kate, uh, Kelly and I have talked about where I teased things for today's episode. I'm going to do a better job not to do that in the future, but there were several things that we teased last week that we told you that we would tell you today. And so meticulously we went through everything and we're going to do that. And the first thing is to let you know that that is going to be handled today. So we left with that phone call. Dawn is on the phone with this mystery caller of ours, obviously a sick sociopath. Yes. Right. So when we cliff hung our faithful listeners, yep. The caller was on the phone and this was the last phone call with Dawn, the older sister of Sherry, whom he had abducted mm-hmm. from the end of her driveway on May the 31st, 1985 in that last call. And this is three weeks later on June the 22nd, 1985, the caller explicitly threatened Dawn's life yes. by saying that God wants you to join your sister. Mm-hmm. Next week, next month, next year, you will join your sister, Dawn E. Smith. That's what he said. That is a clear threat. Yes. And at the end of that call, he also gave a set of directions. He had done this previously when he gave directions to find Sherry Smith's body. Mm -hmm. Here he is with another series of directions. Mm -hmm. The directions led authorities eventually to the body of nine-year-old Deborah May Helmick. And I think I said Helmrick a couple of times last week, so my apologies for getting that wrong. But he had, this person had abducted nine-year-old Deborah May Helmick two weeks to the day after he had kidnapped and murdered Sherry. And that's the story you told last week where the dad was inside their home. They Mm -hmm. lived in a mobile home. Yes. He was inside just feet away. She was playing in the yard with her sibling. Yes, her younger brother. And this man jumps out, grabs her, takes off, and the neighbor sees him, gets a good look at him. Yes. Knocks on the door, or bangs on the door, runs over and says, someone just took your daughter. And they call the cops and they try to go after Whoever, Whoever this, this person was. Correct. They are unsuccessful, obviously, in finding who this is. But yes, the neighbor gives a description of what this person looks like. Now, the Helmricks had no phone in their mobile home. It is Helmick. There's no Helmick, R. Helmick, no R. Did I say Helmrick again? Deborah May Helmick. Mm-hmm. So the Helmicks had no phone in their mobile home. So this call that we're talking about where Dawn is calling or is receiving a call from this person, which was a collect call, by the way. We may have mentioned that. We talked about collect calls. Mm-hmm. This is one last call from this guy. He didn't have anyone else to call. He couldn't call the Helmick family. Mm-hmm. And also now he's infatuated with Dawn. Mm-hmm. So it gives him an excuse to call her again. Yes. And at the end of his instructions and directions and everything else that he says to Dawn, he says, Deborah May is waiting. Oh, and we know what that means by yes. now. Yes, we know what that means. And sure enough, law enforcement found Deborah May exactly where the caller directed. And just like Sherry, Deborah May had been in place long enough that decomposition had begun to commence. She'd been in the, in the summer heat, the late spring heat mm-hmm. in South Carolina. So it was difficult to determine exactly how she had been killed. The sheriff in Lexington County, South Carolina, realizes we've got to find this guy because it's it seems like it's the same guy. Mm-hmm. He's done the same thing again. Yeah. We found two dead bodies. Well and he said full court press. He knew exactly where the body was and this time was this the this time he's not using the voice box. He had stopped doing that very early in the eight phone calls that he made to the Smith family during the Sherry Smith saga. A couple of times he used some sort of electronic device to disguise his voice. But like sociopaths do, they begin to think that they are smarter than the police. I don't need to go to these lengths anymore. This is an extra step that I don't have to take because they're never going to find me anyway. Mm -hmm. Fantastic segue. Because there's finally a bit of good news. On the very same day that Deborah May's body is found, 
the folks at SLED, and that is the South Carolina Law Enforcement Division, which we have mentioned several times on this show before in various capacities. They find something. Remember that two-page letter that Sherry was forced to write, possibly at gunpoint, to her family? Her last will. It was titled Last Will and Testament. Yes. And she wrote in that, maybe some good will come of this. Yes, she did. And I don't know exactly what Sherry was thinking at the time. We will never know. But that thought turned out to be very prophetic because the letter she was forced to write held the piece of evidence that SLED is about to use to solve this crime. I am hanging on by threads. Well, I'm not going to go into the details about what SLED did, the forensics that they used, because it doesn't matter. But what they found on one of those two pages of Sherry's letter, the very faint impressions from writing that had been scribbled onto a piece of paper that was on top of that of those two pieces of paper. So her letter was on a piece of yellow. It was lined, a yellow, blue lined, yellow legal pad, legal eight and a half pad. by eleven. So someone had written various things on the sheet of on paper. On a previous sheet of paper. That was on top of that and <laughs> ripped it off. And then Sherry was forced to write her was handed last will what was left. On that. Yes. And so they're finding these indentions or imprints. Mm-hmm. In this paper. So what did they find? Well, they found a couple of things. They found what looked like maybe part of a grocery list. They found some names. And they found what looked like it might have been a phone number. Three digits, followed by three digits, followed by four digits. And here's our first Alabama connection. Okay. Because the first three numbers on that faint impression were 205. Ooh, 205. And And at that time, though, 205 in 1985 Mm -hmm. was Huntsville. No. That right. was the, no, 205, was the there was only one area code in the state of Alabama that was the whole in 1985. State, the 205. Now there are like four area codes. Yeah. 334, 256. 256, I think there's one other one, but it does, at the time there was only one and it was 205. Mm-hmm. And so then the next three numbers yes. are Huntsville. The next three numbers are 837. 837. And that is a Huntsville exchange. Okay. Of those last four digits, one of them is missing. But there's only 10 numbers to plug in. So SLED starts making phone calls. And they're hoping that somebody is going to answer the phone and lead them in the correct direction. And sure enough, when they get to uh, the last four digits were 1848. And it was the four that was missing. Okay. So if they started in the basement at zero, it was their fifth phone call when Joey Shepard answered and said, yeah, sure. My family lives in Saluda County, South Carolina. That's the adjacent county to, to Lexington County. Okay. And those people are my parents, Ellis and Sharon Shepard. Okay. So Sled now is have, very interested. Oh, we have a very interested. I bet they're very interested in Ellis at this point. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. So the investigators immediately head to the Shepard residence. This is June the 26th, 1985. Okay. It is the day of Deborah May Helmick's funeral. Okay. So they get to the shepherds and they speak openly with them. The shepherds do. They don't have anything to hide. They tell them that, yeah, we travel a lot. We're not home that often. And whenever we go away, we have this guy who works part-time for Ellis that we pay him to, to house it for us. Okay. His name is Larry Jean Bell. And what does Larry do for Ellis other than house sit? Well, uh, uh, Ellis is an electrician. Oh, and so interesting. He is a he is an electrician's apprentice. He helps out with electric type projects. So he might understand a, a voice module mm-hmm. or something like a, that. Uh, something that modulates your voice. He's got some skill in that area. That was part of the FBI profile. Part of John Douglas's FBI profile about what this guy might have looked like or have been like. Well, yeah, and to be clear, the shepherds were on vacation. When Sherry went. Yes, that is correct. We will and, deter- the, 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 the investigators figure out pretty quickly that the shepherds have nothing to do with this. Right. They were on vacation, and this Larry Jean Bell, mm-hmm. who is an electrician, were sort of, yeah. works for Ellis and was house-sitting for them. For the duration of their, of their vacation, which was several weeks. And during that time, Sherry Fay went missing and was murdered. Correct. Okay. We've got one more Alabama connection. Okay. Larry Jean Bell was born on October the 30th, 1949, in the unincorporated community of Ralph, Alabama. R A L P H, yes, 
I said what you think I said. Ralph. Ralph. Where, where is Ralph? Ralph is over on the western side of the state of Alabama. So it's about 150 miles away from where we are in the northeast corner of the state. Mm-hmm. But it's about 20 miles southwest of Tuscaloosa. Okay. So he Tuscaloosa is easy to find. But that's where he was born. And then they moved away. But still, we've got an Alabama connection we to have, this case, yeah, it turns out. two Alabama connections. Yeah. So the last time the Shepherds left on one of their trips, they explained to the investigators, they had jotted down some information on a yellow eight and a half by 11 legal pad, mm. including their son's phone number in Huntsville. Which is the 205. Oops. Blah, 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 blah. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As Larry Jean Bell would later mutter under his breath while in police custody and within earshot of at least one officer, I thought I threw that notepad away. Well. He did not. But now the pieces of this puzzle are beginning to fall into place. Mm-hmm. And remember that eyewitness, well, Katie, go ahead. It wouldn't really matter if he threw it away. Like it, He thought he got a fresh legal pad, uh, I guess. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He, he just, uh, you know, just something to mutter when, when, when you're caught and you know it. Mm-hmm. You're thinking mm-hmm. about all the things that you could have done or should have done or thought you did. And that probably, was one of them. He probably thought about the indention of the letter onto the next pages but he didn't think about he wasn't thinking about that phone number of anything previously right and that's what turns out got him into a a shitload of trouble which is why most of the things that you find on this case will be titled last will and testament because Mm -hmm. to bring all of that full circle yeah you know Mm -hmm. and so remember that witness that we talked about to the deborah may helmick kidnapping Mm mm-hmm Larry Jean Bell, spitting image. He says of that composite sketch. That was the guy. Big, dumb, stupid looking. Not exactly, but you kind of get the gist of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually, the description was mid thirties, five foot ten, overweight for his height, with a beer belly, yes. reddish brown beard. Yes. And you throw in the tendency to kidnap and murder young girls, and you've got a real fucking loser. And you've also got that Larry Jean has a history of making inappropriate phone calls oh, to yeah. a ten year old girl. Absolutely. And there was another mm-hmm. charge. What was that? Well, Scott? first of all, the site where Sherry Smith's body was found, three miles from the Shepherd residence. Oh, my gosh. Which, it turned out, is where most likely both of those murders took place. In inside the home. Shepherd's home while they were away on vacation. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And a few days earlier, Sharon Shepherd had seen that composite sketch that Deborah May's eyewitness gave to authorities. It ran in the paper. And from the second she saw it, she said she got chills down her spine. And said to her husband, you don't think Larry Jean Bell could have done this, right? And, and Ellis said, no, that can't be right. But you know what he did just to make sure? He went and checked to see where his thirty-eight revolver was. Uh-huh. It wasn't where it was supposed to be. Oh, my uh, goodness. It's not in its case. It's been moved. Mm. So when detectives came knocking, they were probably like, yeah. Yeah. And also, the, yeah. the shepherds told police that when he picked them up from the airport, mm-hmm. all he wanted to talk about was... Was uh, Sherry Faye. Was the, the abduction. Missing, the missing girl. The he was missing, catching yeah. them up on what they had missed while they were away. And he seemed to have a lot of knowledge about, um, you know, maybe not more than you could mm-hmm. read in the paper. But he just was went on and on and on about it to the point where Sharon said at one point, I just wanted him to shut up. Yeah. she t- it, it made her notice. Yes. And raise an eyebrow. Yep. So the next thing that happens is the investigators who are interviewing the shepherds play some of the phone calls that the Smith family has received. Especially the ones without the voice box. Uh, of course. And first their faces and then their voices said, holy shit, it's him. Mm. The shepherds immediately recognized the voice as that of their part-time employee and trusted house sitter up to that point, Larry Jean Bell. And Larry Jean Bell's voice, um, it's it's a pretty distinct voice, Is I it? would say. And we could... We don't have access to these calls. Um, if you watch a documentary, you can hear some honest, of them. You can hear some of mm-hmm. it. Um, so I would encourage you to do that. Mm-hmm. But we don't have any of those available to us yeah. to, to play for you. But the voice box that he was using made his voice seem very low. It was, okay. It was a very low. But he doesn't really have that sort of pitch. No, because okay. when he takes that voice box out, it's almost like this Barney Fife sounding. Okay. Yeah. It's it's higher. Katie, you've listened to it as yeah, well. That okay. is a good. I should have listened to it. Really, it's not as cartoonish as Barney Fife, but it it has some. 
I don't know if it, because I'm not a yeah. Mus- let's not drag poor Barney into this. I'm not a musical expert, <laughs> so I don't know if I'm talking about pitch or oh, yeah, or yeah. tone. Oh, okay, or, yeah. I don't know what I'm talking. I'm about. lost. But it reminded me a little bit of like Barney Five. Right. It, it's very different than the voice box. Yeah. All right. So now this. So now this name that we have not spoken. Larry Jean Bell has been spoken, and now the investigators know it, and now they start to dig, and this answers your question from a few minutes ago. It turns out Larry Jean Bell has been an asshole for a long time. Mm. Uh, Back in 1975, he tried to kidnap a woman from a shopping mall parking lot in Charlotte, North Carolina, and she screamed and ran away, and he panicked and took off. He got a slap on the wrist for that. In that same year, October 1975, he's on probation for that, which happened in February. He does the same thing to another girl in another shopping mall parking lot, this time with a gun. Same result. She screams. He panics. But he got two years in prison for that. They caught him again. Just two years. Two years. After he got out, he spent some time in a mental hospital once he checked himself into a mental hospital because... He said that he had this inkling, this inclination to attack women, and he was diagnosed with a personality disorder of a psychosexual nature. And Kelly, do I have I have no idea what that could be. Dig in and tell us about, about what this what we're doing here with this guy. So I have no idea a personality disorder of a psychosexual nature. I I don't know. I mean, whatever. What I do know is, first and foremost, I'm going to step on a soapbox for just a minute. Go for and it. Say, put some people, vote some people in who won't slap the wrist of someone who tries to abduct a woman yeah. in a parking lot. With a knife or a gun. With a knife or, I don't care. Yeah. With nothing. It mm-hmm. just tries to, to grab her. Or, or anybody. It doesn't have to be a woman. Anybody. Put some people that, that enforce and make your laws that don't take that lightly so that he's just slapped on the wrist and then 10 years later again and just keeps on doing that you don't just wake up one morning and say i'm i'm only going to abduct one person murder and kill them and then i'm done the appetite has been satiated right that doesn't happen so anyways off that soapbox whatever uh larry jean bell so all I've done all week is listen to those phone calls. And, I, and the way I gained access to them is through documentaries or I listened to a specific podcast that promoted a book that John Douglas wrote. Scott referenced it last week. So they had access to that They audio. had access to the audio through John Douglas and, and him coming out with this new book that, that came out in February of this year. Correct. He was very... He was a very big part of this case mm-hmm. and looking into this abduction and murder and and he was the one who had the lawyer, you know, really press the suspect in the Atlanta child murders case, if you yeah. will remember that. Mm-hmm. So he, he gets involved in these cases pretty pretty deeply and, which would have been uh eighty one. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He so was four in, years before this happened. He was in his prime at this at this point. He had recovered from being seriously ill during the Green River Killer Psychologically case. ill. Yeah. He, right? he went to work the Green River Killer case and came back in a wheelchair. He had viral encephalitis and it almost killed him. So this job almost took his life before this case even happened. Mm-hmm. And then he was able to recover and get back at it, and train other people. So he he wrote a book on this, if you want to check that book out. I think Scott highly recommends it. Oh, yeah, definitely. Anything John Douglas writes, if you're into true crime, he's... uh, He's amazing. Yeah. He's the one who was part of the team that coined the phrase serial killer. Correct. And worked... The whole Mindhunter thing on Netflix is basically the story of how that happened. His his Mindhunter book. Yeah. I think this show's a little bit different than some of the reality, but... The point is the same, and the end result is the same. Yeah, they, they, they punch it up a little bit. <laughs> yeah. So what he says in his FBI profile, and, and he didn't actually come up with a profile, but a guy that he was training came up with a profile for mm-hmm. this case. Okay. And he, was, he said that the individual would be some sort of electrician mm-hmm. because he 
would know how to handle phone calls and voice distortion and would know about call tracing and how quickly to be on the phone and be off the phone. Bingo. He said that this individual would be divorced, probably live with his parents. Both of those are true. Another thing he said was that, Scott, you were talking about physical description earlier. Mm -hmm. He was in his late 20s to early 30s, overweight for his age. Or for his height. Yes. Um, they added after Deborah May was kidnapped that he would be a white man. They did. They actually did not add that he was okay. Caucasian until after the man saw him. Until there was, yeah. That wasn't added to the profile. So what John Douglas explains about Larry Jean Bell is that Larry Jean's signatures in this case are very interesting to a lot of people and the the psychology behind it are very interesting. And what he means by a signature in a case is you have a killer who has something that they do that is not necessary to commit the crime. Right. But it is very necessary in their mind Mm -hmm. to do. And his signature would have been the last will and testament letter that he made Sherry Faye write. Right. And the calling of the family. And this was the first time that they had really dealt with the killer calling the family like this and engaging as much as he had. They had had previous serial killers who had made phone calls maybe to the victims up until they were murdered or Mm. or killed or, and then you had the, of course the golden state killer that, that went along where he would call and he would breathe into the phone and things like that. But this particular killer wanted to speak with the family and he wanted to talk with the mom. We, we talked about that a little bit last week. Mm-hmm. Uh, he he wanted, started out with the mom. He started out with the mom. Then he became fascinated with Dawn and would only talk to Dawn. Right. And listening to those calls this week, first and foremost, I just felt disgusting all week listening yeah. to them. It's I've had a weird week as well. It's quite of an abyss. It will just put you in listening to his ramblings but i could also understand why people would talk with him and feel that he was not threatening and feel that he was a really nice guy because he could have that well that's what other people in his life who didn't who were just as surprised as probably anybody else that knew him correct casually oh what a nice guy and the things that he's saying, he's talking about things. He's talking about them. He's very rigid with what he says. And so that led the FBI to realize that he must be very particular, very put together. Possibly working from a script. He was. Because when they would ask him a question and it would throw him off of his script, he wouldn't really know what to say. And mm-hmm. he would kind of stumble around and then he would start back over and he would repeat himself. Yeah. No answers now. No questions now. No, he said no, it. no I'm not talking about that right now. Yeah. And, you know, and then he would always end it with, you know, God help us all or God forgive us all. Yes. Or, he was, he would never, God forgive me, God, you know, this, it was, it was us all, it was us all. Mm-hmm. And then the part about Sherry, Faye, them being one now, you know, this is not something necessarily new to the serial killer world. Jeffrey Dahmer described his victims becoming one with him okay. because he physically ate them. Right. Yes. Mm. And that's, that was a ritual that he performed that his victim would then become him. Zodiac talked about his victims being his slaves in the afterlife. Right. Yes. And he talks a lot about he and Sherry Faye are one in many ways. Mm-hmm. And he means exactly... What, where the dark places of your mind go. I mean, he, I believe he, and he admits that he raped Sherry Faye. He doesn't call it that. No, but he calls it making love to her. Yeah. I just wanted to make love to her and then things got out of hand. He said to the TV announcer that he called Charlie Keys. Yes. And he, yeah, exactly. And he told Dawn that he, he made love to her Mm -hmm. and then he asked her how she was going to die. He also told her mother this. Yes. He gave her a choice. Did she want to be smothered? Did she want to be shot? 
And there was another choice. Uh, drug overdose? A drug overdose. Maybe. That was it. There were three drug, options. That was for three. And she and chose she suffocation. Chose suffocation. And he wrapped the duct tape around her head and smothered her. Yes. And he tells this to her mother and to Dawn. And he says it. He doesn't say it very casually and conversationally, I wouldn't say. He says it like he's got to get all of these points quickly in. That's what I got from it. Because well, he would say, okay, do you hear me? Okay. So then I gave her a choice. Okay. And then she said. Well, he's, he's got he's that got, clock ticking in his head, right? He yes. knows the call's being traced. Yes. So he's only got so much time. Yes. And that's, right. that's where. And so do you. He's very, very concerned with them believing him that he is not telling a lie, that it is not a hoax. He's very, very concerned about that. Mm-hmm. He wants them to know he is responsible for this. and in. Honestly, I know you mentioned about maybe there was some mental health issues uh, with Larry Jean, but I'm I'm sure. Yeah. But what I don't want us to go down is this rabbit hole of, I I don't want to. Excuse it, it. Right. And I don't want to make it a jaded thing. I, I don't want it to be like, well, he they have a mental health issue, so therefore they do this. That's not true at all. In fact, there are a lot of people who struggle with mental health issues, and they never harm anyone. They, right. they, they, they would never hurt anyone. So I don't want us to kind of get into that but and, and kind of create that generalization because that's just not true. But Larry Jean Bell, I believe, gets more gratification by calling the family, by, in his own way. It doesn't sound like a taunt, but it is. Yeah, he doesn't say it like he's taunting the family. It's just part of that signature that you talked about. It's something that is part of his process. When I commit this crime, Mm -hmm. I've got to do this part as well. There is some sort of obsession running through his mind, and his compulsion, which is the action to relieve that obsession, Mm -hmm. is to call the family, to get all of this out, to tell them this, for them to understand I'm not a hoaxer, for them to find find this body, but find it. I'm still in control of the situation. They're only going to find it. When I want when I to. tell them where it is. So he likes to be in control. He likes things orderly. And when he felt like he was losing control, when they would throw him off, he really didn't know what to say. And that's when you would have that moment if yeah. he would kind of repeat a lot of the script. Right. So listening to that, all of the actions that Larry Jean Bell took, I think the question then becomes, does Larry Jean Bell truly understand that what he did was wrong and was breaking the law, and the answer is absolutely. Yeah, there you don't. That's do going to be the this. final determination. Yeah, you don't do all of this and create all of these scenarios and and without understanding that what you did was wrong. And he admit, God help me, it got out of hand. It you know this that. Yeah, whatever. that's when he when he feels bad about it the next day when he calls the or days later when he calls the TV announcer. He's like, man, I can't live with myself. I've got to turn myself in. And then in that 24-hour period, he changes his mind again, and he does not follow through with that Well, I don't, I don't believe he ever meant Maybe to turn not. himself in. I think it was all, you know, part of something he was creating and okay. staging. And John Douglas is the one who... He said, doesn't believe that shit either. He doesn't think he Never ever meant to it. turn himself in. Yeah. He was not going to do that. Yeah. So... As far as, you know, if it had kept going, would Larry Jean Bell have taken his own life? Who's to say? Mm -hmm. But the FBI fully believes that he would have killed again. I don't see any reason why they would be wrong in that because that's what he was doing. He absolutely would have, I think. Yeah, you just Mm -hmm. keep going until somebody stops you, right? I mean, Edmund Kemper, we've... You either get too old to do it, like the Zodiac, maybe, or you get caught for something else and you are never revealed. But you just, you're this, this is the compulsion that you have. You can't, you can't stop. And we see him, if you look at, look at his history, his criminal history, yeah. you see it escalating every time. First, we start with some obscene phone calls, inappropriate mm-hmm. phone calls. Yep. Then we graduate to trying to take someone from a parking lot on a couple of occasions. And then we actually do take someone, and two weeks later, we take somebody else. Right. We're, we've escalated and we're not stopping. And he even escalates sort of in his speech. He talks about 
you'll find us there. When he talks about Sherry, us, we're one. We're we are us. one. By the time he gets to Deborah May, Deborah May is waiting. It's no longer we are waiting. It's Deborah May is waiting. Mm-hmm. And so we've kind of started separating ourselves from the victim at this point where Deborah May is concerned. Okay. And I feel like that's an escalation that we would eventually just have kept going and no longer. Then we were able to fully justify what we did. We didn't have to make ourselves a okay. part of that person. You're, you're getting smarter in your mind or you're getting mm-hmm. better at your, at your and trade. And you're feeling less and less bad possibly. Yeah. But a lot of serial killers will say that the, the time after they, right after they killed someone, they're very paranoid and they feel like the entire world knows exactly what they've just sure. done. Yeah. And they're very, very paranoid. That doesn't necessarily mean they're sorry they did it. They just don't want to get caught. Right. And I think that's what Larry Jean Bell was struggling with. That, that obsession that, oh, I'm going to get caught, oh, I'm going to get caught. Mm -hmm. I don't ever get the sense that Larry Jean Bell was sorry for anything he did. Oh, yeah. He was just regretted being caught for it. He did not want to get caught, and it was eating him up. That's why he's constantly talking about it. He's taking all of these steps, trying to Telling the shepherds about it from uh, during their ride back from the airport when he picks them up. He can't resist the temptation to talk about it. He can't resist trying to control the situation, calling the family making sure he keeps saying call off the search call off the search yeah. he keeps you know making sure they don't find the bodies until he's ready for them to right he's got to control all of that and just you got on your soapbox earlier i'm going to help you put that soapbox away because there's one other instance that we need to talk about when it comes to larry jean bell in october of 1979 after all of these other things have happened you mentioned the phone calls and that's when he was convicted of making obscene phone calls to a 10-year-old girl in charlotte north carolina he got a two-year sentence, suspended, and five years of probation. That is just beautiful, isn't it? Yeah. So we're That's all dis- ridiculous. We're all disgusted with that. I know. Let's fast forward to 1985, and we're back to June the 27th. Now we have two people murdered, and probably both of them raped. We know yes. Sherry was raped. Probably, probably both. Deborah May too. Who was? Mm. How old was Deborah May? Nine. Nine years old. Nine years old. Uh, It's June the 27th, 1985, and this nightmare in Lexington County, South Carolina, is almost over. Uh, Police stake out Larry Jean Bell's house, and Kelly mentioned it a minute ago. He's 36 years old and still lives with his fucking parents. There you go, FBI. Let's just tattoo the capital L to his forehead and be done with it. And they were just a little bit off on the age. They said early 30s, but uh, hey, yeah, that's very close. Very close. So at 7.30 that morning, Larry Jean Bell pulls out of his parents' driveway, is immediately surrounded by police cars and law enforcement officers. Without incident, he's arrested. He's read his Miranda rights. He's taken to the Lexington County Sheriff's Department. No, he doesn't put up a fight because he's not going to fight a man. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So the warrant lists among the reasons for his arrest, the Alabama phone number yep. that was lifted from Sherry's last will and testament and the shepherd's identification of his voice from those phone calls. There's all kinds of crazy shit that happens between the day he's arrested and the day he goes to trial. But we're going to skip over all of that because there's plenty of crazy shit that happens in the trial as well. And that is where young Katie Gibbons comes in. Katie, take her away. <laughs> well, because of questions about jurisdiction in this trial, it was September of, of 85 before he was actually formally charged. And then, of course, you have the grand jury indictments for the kidnappings and murders of Sherry Faye Smith and Deborah May Helmick. Uh, we have a South Carolina State Hospital. They examine Bell. They determine that he is mentally competent to stand trial and to participate in his own defense because there's obviously, there was questions about his mental state. So, he is declared competent to stand trial, so we ignore all that. Trial for the murder of Sherry Smith begins November 11th, 1985. Defense attorney in this is named Jack Swirling. He's one of South Carolina's best defense attorneys at the time. And then we have Lexington County solicitor Donnie Myers, who's the prosecutor. And, you know, as much as we've done cases in South Carolina now, you know, they use some different terminology. So solicitor Yeah, that means the, the district attorney. Yeah. Three days later, uh, there is a change of venue that is granted. This case was a huge media storm. You know, he's calling uh, media All of those phone calls. So yeah. It's, it, 
the change of a venue being granted didn't come as a surprise to anyone. So that new trial that's granted, it doesn't begin until January of 86. So we're a couple of more months down the road and we're 120 miles away. His defense attorney swirling, he's actually briefly hospitalized. So that delays the trial a little longer. But the relocated trial begins 1986, February. When Bell gets into the courtroom, things just go off the rails. Big time. He starts yelling. He's belligerent. He screams things like, I can't take this anymore. I want to see my doctor. Some other disturbing things I'll get into. And this is all still when they're trying to see the jury. Yes, yes. The trial hasn't even started yet. Larry does not have control of this situation. And And he's freaking out. He does not like it. Yeah. And I think a part of him still wants to get this mental incompetency Possibly. Sure. He's fighting for his life. If I have to act like a nut, let's do it. He says in his calls he he can't go to the chair for this. He yeah. doesn't want to go to the chair. Exactly. And that's that's what where, he's looking at. That's what the yeah, that's what the courts are looking at putting him. Mm-hmm. So we finally have a jury, seven women, five men, which I think, you know, you, if I'm the prosecution on this, I'm wanting more women than men. Sure. Yeah, that exactly. helps. Mm-hmm. All the tapes of the phone calls to the Smith home are admitted into evidence, and they're all played at the trial for this jury. As they should have been. Mm -hmm. Among the witnesses called were Hilda and Don Smith. They both testified that Larry Jean Bell's voice is the voice that they spoke to on the phone. Also, previously, before the trial, Hilda and Don got to confront Bell in person at the sheriff's office on June 27th, the day of his arrest, to hear his voice. John Douglas was in the room when that happened. He was sitting in when... Dawn and Hilda were brought in to confront Larry Jean Bell. Mm-hmm. So this is the second time they've confirmed his voice. During that confrontation at the sheriff's office, he spoke to them for an hour. He never admitted anything, but he just rambled on for yeah. an hour. I, it couldn't have been me. This Larry Jean Bell sitting in this chair could not have done this. Maybe the other Larry Jean Bell did it, but it wasn't me. That kind of rambling on and on. Hilda forgave him. She said, look, I forgive you for what you did to my daughter. I don't have room in my heart for any more hate. Yeah, and, and just a sidebar, Hilda and Don in both of those calls, especially Don, is saying to him, listen to me, God can help you. Yeah, the very religious family, the Smiths. Turn like we life, said, he was a pastor, Bob Smith. Yes, turn your life over to God. God can forgive you. You know, they're almost comforting him Especially when he has led them to believe that their daughter is still alive. For several days. Yeah, and they're saying this to him, just, just you know, bring her home safely. I'll meet you anywhere with her medicine. Mm-hmm. She doesn't have to come home right now. We'll meet you with the medicine. They're just trying to say anything. And it turns out that about an hour and a half after she wrote that last will and testament at 3.10 a.m., right. he killed her. Yeah, she was dead in 12 hours after she was abducted from her driveway. Before he even made the first phone call to mm-hmm. them. Yeah. Which is sick. Very sick. That TV announcer we spoke of last week, Charlie Keyes, he had actually recorded his phone call from Bell, and he testifies in the trial as well. In Bell's parents' home, which, as we mentioned, he lived with his parents, investigators found a book of those mallard duck stamps. Mm-hmm. With one missing, yep. at least one. Yep, that matched the same stamps that were found on the envelope that contained Sherry's last will and testament letter to her family. There were also hairs found in the Shepherd residence that were most likely from Sherry. Now, remember, we're in, not, we're in the 80s, so right. we don't have We that. didn't have DNA yet. Yes, but they can kind of get a general consensus on this is the same type of hair Sherry had. Same with blood found in the home. It matched Sherry's top. That's all you could really match up at the time. Mm-hmm. We went through the letter already. That was the huge piece of evidence. Of course, the defense brings in their own psychologist, mm-hmm. and the, def- the defense's psychologist says that Bell suffers from a thought disorder and borderline psychosis. It's basically alleging that he can't think logically. Mm-hmm. But as we've said, he's been declared competent to stand trial. And then Bell himself decides he's going to take the stand. Always a terrible idea. Exactly. Well, I think he's just trying to act like a nut mm. at this point. Which okay. he does. He's, he's got his favorite reply on repeat. He keeps saying silence is golden. He won't, answer, he won't answer questions from his own defense attorney. And so that makes him look very good to yep. the jury. He's trying to make himself look nuts to the jury. 
Well, did the right, jury, Katie? Yeah, did, I mean, that's, that's, that's it. How it he that's how it seems. I mean, yeah. there, there's no reason to put yourself on the stand and then not answer the questions you're own attorney is asking you he's asking you these questions to help you yeah he won't he won't tell the names of his parents or where he lives or you know he won't talk about his family at all brilliant just brilliant Mm. so does the jury buy any of this katie no no. (laughs) they have they have another competency hearing because he's acting so erratic he's got Mm -hmm. these outbursts these ridiculous statements judge rules he's competent to stand trial and keeps going (laughs) yeah the judge is like fuck this idiot just get him up here Let's get this over with. On the day of final arguments, Bell stands up in the courtroom and he asks Don Smith to marry him. She's in the courtroom. <sighs> oh, Larry. There's a lot of back and forth after this and the judge kicks him out of the courtroom at this point. Finally. Oh, absolutely. Yes. On February 23rd, the jury deliberates for less than an hour before they return a guilty verdict on murder and kidnapping. During the sentencing phase of the trial, uh, they bring in those three women that Bell had previously attacked, and they testify as well. Mm. Yeah, because th- you can bring that into sentencing, but you can't bring that into this correct to, right. to the trial. That's that part. bifurcated trial system that we talked about that le- that every state had to do to be able to reapply the death penalty back in the early seventies, mm-hmm. when seventy two, when the Supreme Court said no more death penalty because it's being applied too arbitrarily. Mm-hmm. This was one of the systems. Now you separate the the guilt phase from the sentencing phase. Exactly. Because mm-hmm. he's already, mm-hmm. he's declared, he's already guilty. They have found him guilty, so now they're trying to figure out what to do with what him. What do we do with him? Mm-hmm. So they bring in the other victims. Uh, they bring up the threat that he posed to Dawn about her being next. Yes. Clearly. Yes. Because, oh. and then his defense attorney asks for another competency hearing. Because, and to be, I mean, if you're going to, sentence someone to death, you, you want to make sure they're competent because that comes back and then... you know we've Yeah, talked, in the appeals process, that can bite you in the ass yes. as a prosecution. Well, but. and we've talked about this in previous cases when we dealt with the Halloween killer. Mm-hmm. We talked about he waived all of that. Right. He wouldn't even... He wanted. He wanted to die, and that yeah. was so very questionable to me about Kinda his... Like you needed a competency hearing more. I felt like... He should have had a competency hearing, mm-hmm. but he didn't. You know, we, talk, we talked about that one last season. Judge, once again, says he's competent. And, of course, the defense is just, he's thinking this is his best shot at this point. So he's throwing everything he can out there. But on February 27th, the jury takes two hours to return with the death penalty. And, and, that, and I'm sure that was not an easy decision for anybody who sat on that jury. I don't know. I mean, it might have been, but it, but at the same time, to, it's a heavy decision. That's to a make that's a tough decision. To send someone to death. Mm-hmm. It's it's got to be overwhelming evidence. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I w- I feel like if there was an ever if there ever was a case of overwhelming evidence of someone's guilt, I think Larry Jean no, Bell meets that. He, I think there's no question they had yeah. the right man. Yeah, this is not a, a wrongly accused person who got sentenced to death. Because no, 13 months later, he's tried and found guilty of the kidnapping and murder of Deborah May Helmick. Mm-hmm. And the jury on that one deliberates for an hour about the same. Quickly, yeah. And he's sentenced to death on that case as well. He appeals that one. He says that the judge erred in jury qualification, but that it, the conviction's affirmed and no, no, he goes he nowhere on that He is sentenced to death twice. Yes. Yes. If you're Just keeping, in case. If you keep in count. Yeah. And he sits in prison a little shy of 10 years. He is executed on October 4th, 1996, by the electric chair. He but, is the last yeah. prisoner in the state of South Carolina to be electric. They had gone to lethal injection, but if you were convicted of murder when the death penalty was the electric chair, you could keep the electric chair if you wanted. And Larry Jean Bell chose to die in the electric chair. So he got to choose his way to die. He did. He could pick lethal injection or the chair, and he picked the chair. Well, isn't that full circle? Isn't that poetic justice? Mm -hmm. I don't know if that's justice. Oh, that's justice. That's as close as we're going to get to justice for for Sherry Sherry and and for Deborah. And Deborah. Absolutely. Mm. So... Another thing about poetic justice is him making her write this last will and testament letter, and that being the very thing that led to his capture and yeah. eventually conviction. So, how do you like that? 
that's uh, good that's enough very, for me. That's very it's as good as we could hope for. That's one of the things that makes this case so fascinating to to people. A lot of podcasts have been done on this, and I, I would encourage you to listen to a podcast called True Crime Garage. They're okay. one. They're some of my favorites. Yeah, they're, they're good. They're the two that, that got me into this podcast. Maybe since we gave them a shout-out, they'll give us a shout-out if they listen to this episode. <laughs> and their, their episodes back in February of this year. When that book came out. When John Douglas's book came out are very, very interesting. I think they do an incredible job. And you get to hear from John Douglas himself. I'm going to listen to that. Talk about that. Because a lot of the things that I've talked about today... I got from that podcast and things that John Douglas directly said on that podcast. It is such an interesting take to hear from him the way that he thinks about this and, and right. how it has affected his life and the fact that he still to this day loses sleep thinking about cases and he's retired. I mean, he's never fully retired. But, right. You know. Yeah. But I mean, this, this mid eighties, this was 40 years ago. He still has Ooh. cases that keep him yeah. up at night, things he still thinks about and and um victims and their families and he Well, I mean the Smiths in particular, I mean he got to know them. You know, he mm-hmm. spent time in the Smiths home mm-hmm. waiting for the phone to ring and then when they confronted Larry Jean Bell at the sheriff's department, he was there. He was there. So he, he got to that. know them. Mm-hmm. He did. And and he's such a very interesting man Certainly. to listen to and to read his his book. So I want to throw that out there and encourage you guys to check that out. I'm not, ex- I think the episodes are called When a Killer Calls. Yes. That's the title of the book and that he wrote. that's the title of his book. And the, it's a three-part episode from back in February. So check that out and you can hear him. There's also a documentary that I watched, uh, Forensic Files. And it was, I believe it was season eight, episode 14, that dealt with this one. And it's called Last Will. Okay. And it, it gives a really nice, it's a short episode it just gives you a snapshot of what happened and you can see pictures of the letter and pictures of Mm -hmm. the individuals involved and it was very interesting i i enjoyed that so i I would i would recommend the other book of course i read uh john douglas's book but i read another book by rita Schuler. she worked for sled back in the 80s and she wrote a book called murder in the midlands and that's a that's a colloquialism that is familiar to people from South Carolina. That is the portion of the state where this murder or these murders took place. But she worked in SLED as a forensic. She took photographs of both crime scenes. Oh my goodness. She spent, she's very uh, open about the reaction that she had and how that affected her life. I'm sure. Uh, when all of this happened. She got attached are, as well. These are human beings that have to go in and see these horrible things and solve these cases. Yeah. And I know that they choose to go into this line of work, but it's such a noble cause. And these individuals suffer right along with the victims. Absolutely. I'm, I'm not diluting the victim's suffering. Yeah. But I'm saying they it affects them as well. You have multiple victims when you talk about a crime. Yeah. You have... You know, this, the inner circle, the victim and the victims themselves. Then you have their family that's affected by this. Then you have mm-hmm. their friends, their community, the people who take pictures of the crime scenes, the people who have to solve the cases, the people who have to talk with the killer and listen to all of this. A lot of people's lives. And then you have the killer's family. And you not to mention parents, the Bell's family. Who have to struggle. And then you have... The jury who has to hold it on their shoulders. Do I say yes? Murder this man, kill this man. Mm-hmm. You know, in the name of justice. Death, you have it, it. Really becomes, you know that that circle just keeps getting bigger and bigger when you talk about a crime. Yeah. So I think I think that's one of the reasons why I wanted to get into this is to to call that to light. It impacts society in mm-hmm. multiple ways. Yeah. But Sherry Fay was such a wonderful person. And I think we need to talk a little bit about Sherry Fay. All right. And how she, what kind of person was Sherry Fay, Scott? Uh, she was a very religious person. She was uh, very popular. She was involved. In, she was a singer. She mm-hmm. sang with her sister. They called them the Smith Sisters. Like I mentioned last week, she was supposed to go to that theme park in Charlotte. Mm-hmm. And spend the summer there, you know, in the inter- 
as part of the afternoon entertainment, the show. Mm -hmm. But she had a vocal issue and she wasn't going to be able to do it. But just very popular in school. She was a pretty blonde with blue eyes. She had a boyfriend named Richard. Uh, she was certainly looking forward to graduating from high school and going on that trip to the Bahamas with her with her classmates. Just a just a bubbly, full of life, seventeen year old girl with her whole life ahead of her. Absolutely, and her sister Dawn. I think we talked last week that. We thought she might have been 19. Dawn was 21 when this happened. Okay. Oh, okay. I right. did verify that. So okay. Dawn was 21 when this happened. But this is the letter that Sherry Fay was forced to write. Her last will and testament. Her last will and testament in her final hours of her this life. This will tell you a lot about what kind of person Sherry Smith was. So in the top left corner, it says 6185 against the date. It has 3.10 a.m., and right beside it, it says, I love y'all, with an exclamation point, and it's underlined many, many times. Mm -hmm. Under that, it says, Last Will and Testament, and it's underlined. I love you, Mommy, Daddy, Robert, Don, and Richard, and everyone else, and all other friends and relatives. I'll be with my father now, so please, please don't worry. Just remember my witty personality and great special times we all shared together. Please don't even let this ruin your lives. Just keep living one day at a time for Jesus. Some good will come out of this. My thoughts will always be with and in you. Then it has parentheses, and in the parentheses it says, casket closed. I love you. I love you all so damn much. Sorry, Dad. I had to cuss for once. Jesus, forgive me. Richard, sweetie, I really did and always will love you and treasure our special moments. I ask one thing, though. Accept Jesus as your personal Savior. My family has been the greatest influence of my life. I'm sorry if I ever disappointed you in any way. I only wanted to make you proud of me because I have always been proud of my family. Mom, Dad, Robert, and Dawn. There's so much I want to say that I should have said before now. I love you. I know y'all love me and will miss me very much. But if y'all stick together, the way we always did, y'all can do it. Please do not become hard or upset. Everything works out for the good of those who love the Lord. All my love always. Sharon, in parentheses it says Sherry Smith. P.S. Nana, I love you so much. Kind of always felt like your favorite. <laughs> you were mine. And that was her letter. In her last moments, knowing she had to know she was going to die, all she can think to do is make sure that her family knows that she loves them. And to go on without her. And to some good will come of this. And that is the piece of paper that caught Larry Jean Bell. Yep. All of that about her family that we know that they went on and lived their lives because later that same year, Older sister Dawn mm -hmm. became Miss South Carolina. How about that? She won the pageant. She went on to compete in the Miss America pageant in September of 1986 and was the second runner-up. That's pretty awesome. That is awesome. I'm, I'm assuming that she did some singing for her talent portion. Probably so. Yeah. Regarding Deborah May's family, there's not a lot of information that I was able to find except for one thing. Deborah May had a younger sister named Becky. Becky in 97 had a daughter. Guess what they named her? Deborah. Yeah. Oh. She grew up playing with the same doll that Deborah used to play with when she was a kid. Oh. So, life goes on. Oh. Sadly. It does. Thank you so much for listening today. At least we could bring you some closure with some justice today. Yeah, not much more than that, but at least that. At least that. And what, what an inspiration this family is to still hold on to their faith 
and to say they forgive this man and to move on and continue to live their lives. My heart goes out to the Smith family and to the Helmick family. Sadly, we don't get to do a lot of happy endings. We are focused on true crime here, so we don't get to do that very often, and again, today we did not. I know it. I know it. Thank you so much for listening. Uh, Give us a five-star review on Apple Podcast and and write us a little comment there so that we can... uh, Shout you out. Holla at us on Facebook, too. I know. Do we have any shout outs today, Scott? Didn't uh, the... Probate Judge Tim Burgess is a new fan of the show. I'm not oh. sure if I'm supposed to tell that yet, but I talked with him on Friday <laughs> and he said he's going to start listening to the show. He was not aware of it. Apparently, our advertising efforts are insufficient. <laughs> Does that mean he doesn't read the paper? I don't want to get into that. Oh. He better. He's the probate judge. Oh. <laughs> All right. Come see us at the Fall Festival. Yeah. And we will get you signed up to possibly win some beats and sell you a t-shirt absolutely we'll do it again next week how about that guys sounds great everybody in good night everybody